0: Good afternoon, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Well, we made it through Easter. I'm proud of your staff. They worked really, really hard. It takes a lot to be able to coordinate, to figure out where people need to sit when there are no seats. And we had a couple of those. Moments last week, and they did a fabulous job. It's my hope that you would pray for all the people who came, believing that the seed that was planted in their soul is going to reap some some great benefit for God. Turn with me over to the book of Philippi. Boy, it's been four services. Philippians. (laughs) This is service number four. The book of Philippians, the church of Philippi. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 15 through 20. Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 through 20. We're going to continue our series on preparing an on-ramp for God. Subtitled today, Filling the Gap. Filling the Gap. Paul is writing, and he says in verse 15 of chapter 4, You yourselves also know, Philippians. That at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even at Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my own needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek that for which profit increases to your account. But I have received, verse 18, everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus that which you have sent, a fragrant aroma an acceptable sacrifice well pleasing to God. Verse 19. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, help us as we study. I want to talk to you on three points regarding this passage one what it means to partner with god two the prophet that comes from partnering with god and three what the provision looks like how it fleshes out a reality background this was arguably paul's favorite church they seemed to have given even when paul didn't ask they just had this instinctive sense we got to do something The church was birthed in persecution. Now, that's not unusual when it was birthed by Paul. Just about every place he went, stuff happened that was untoward. Beat up, put in prison, almost killed, sometimes killed, raised from the dead. In Lystra, he was literally all but dead, if not considered dead. The disciples said, it says that they took him out of the city to bury him. So you don't do that with a guy who's still got breath in his lungs. And got outside the city, and Paul shook it off and got back up. So he went through some stuff. And normally his churches were birthed in fire. Well, this was no different. Philippi is the first church in Europe. Lydia was the first convert who started the first church in Europe under Paul's leadership. She invited Paul after meeting him at the uh, river where she was washing some clothes and invited him back home and he preached the gospel to her and her family and household and everybody got saved and then from there the church began to spring forward in the community to where the community was now taking notice and some people who realized that this might be a threat to their business of idolat- idolatry and making idols and began to talk about Paul and Silas, Silas was Paul's companion and began to talk about both of them in less than encouraging terms and indeed began to to foam in a strategy about how they could stop these two and a kind of a riot broke out to which Paul and Silas had to be restrained by the Philippian police, if you will, the Roman guards and then thrown in jail and when they were thrown in jail they weren't just thrown in jail, they were thrown in the inner jail it says, what we would call the hole and when they were thrown in the inner jail of the jail they were shackled while they were in the inner jail of the jail these dangerous men, those who would escape. <laughs> they weren't going anyplace. These were law abiding citizens. Yet the Romans couldn't figure out why in the world had these two guys caused such an uproar. We better make sure that they are restrained beyond any comprehensible way of being released. And so they put them down in there. And then, right about midnight, songs were heard. Paul and Silas began singing. Communicating to God things that had never been said from there. Now, if I was in jail like that, I'd communicate some stuff to God. But I don't know it would be that. I'm just letting you know in my flesh, maybe my maturity after walking with it for 34 years would prompt me to at least follow the example of Paul and Silas. But remember, they had no example. There was no Bible passage that said, do this. They made it up as they went along, and wow, what an improvisation. This was beautiful music being played in the song of life. They began to sing, and stuff was coming out of the inner jail that nobody had ever heard before. God heard it coming out of there. And whenever you praise, it's good. But when you praise out of places from which it shouldn't naturally come, it's really good. Captured God's attention. Earthquake happened. Earthquake. You have no idea what your praise will do. That's why you can't come into church waiting for this worship team to lead you to a place where now you can feel like you can praise. You need to come in ready to praise because you can't waste the 17 minutes. That's all we got is 17, maybe 18 if if you're really fortunate. 18 minutes of singing. You don't want to waste that—the first seven of it—thinking, "Oh Lord, help me, help me! I need to rev my soul up. I need to get engaged." And then, by the time we get to the last song, you in it about three quarters of the way, and it's done. It's too late. You got to come ready because you don't know what your praise will do. Now, an earthquake happened. It broke all the all the locks on the gates. The door gates, the prison gates, just flung open. And 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 the warden thought oh my goodness everybody's gone why because when he walked out all he saw was prison doors open and nobody there mm-hmm. now the, the warden thought what happened is what we would do if we were in a place of confinement out of which we could not get and did not want to be and we were praying for God to release us and, and, and all of a sudden an earthquake happens as a result of our prayer and worship and the doors fly open what would you do Jesus, thank you, thank you, Jesus. I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. God answers prayers, and bolt out the door. The Philippian jailer, the warden thought, oh, and and see, the penalty for losing a prisoner was death—burning at the stake with your own clothes, kind of death. So he took out a sword. Not finding a prisoner, he he knew they wouldn't still be there. <laughs> he knew they wouldn't still be there, and so he knew they were gone. Took out his sword, thought I'll just kill myself because this is better than the other kind of death. And as, as, as about he, as just about as he was going to thrust it into his belly, he hears, "Wait, wait, 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 wait! Hey, 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 hey!" We're all here. The jailer looks in the, the cell, and when he said, when Paul says, "All." Oh, because it says not only did his cell door fling open, but everybody's flung open. All the prison doors in the entire prison, you have no idea what your praise will do for other people. You have no idea what your praise will do for other people. All of them flung open. And when he says all, he means every prisoner was there because the Philippian jailer did not die. So something happened whereby the people who were in the jail heard this singing. And they'd never heard singing from there. When the, when the doors flung open, they just said, who are those dudes? And they went down there, and there was probably a Bible study going on. I don't know, but they were all still there. If the jailer is so blown away, he says, can I have your God, please? I don't even know how to get to him. Can you, how do I get saved? That's how the church was birthed in Philippi. Jailers, prisoners. Lydia, who was a fine artisan with respect to cloth. You had, you had a cross-section of society, but everybody brand new in God. But after Paul got released from prison, because the next morning he got released, it probably, probably wasn't a good idea to stay, because those who had it out for him still had it out for him. And so he left, and he went to Thessalonica. Well, the Philippians were so grateful for, for whatever he had done for them in birthing them without any request that we have record of the Philippian church just said, we're going to send you away with some money so while Paul was at Thessalonica, the next city, they just sent him money oh, that's amazing now other churches have contributed to Paul, but most of them on the basis of his request this church just loved him like that and This church was so special that Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 1. And when I pray for you in all of my remembrances of you, because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, I have nothing but joy when I think about you. Is there anybody with whom you've been in a relationship for a long period of time that you can say every remembrance was happy? This is what Paul says about this church. Every time I think about you, and I think about the times we had together, every one of them brings me joy. That's how special this church was. And not just because they had nice worship services, but in view of their participation in the gospel from the first until now. And when Paul is writing this letter, he's writing it years after he had been with them. And so this church has been contributing on a regular basis, they contributed to him when he was in Thessalonica. They contributed to the needs of the saints in Jerusalem when, when, the, when the church in Jerusalem had some issues with respect to famine. We know that to be true because Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 when he's reproving the church at Corinth about not giving. And he says, Your buddy, your sister church in Philippi, out of their deep poverty, it, it welled up into a, a flood of resources. This church gave out of their want and need. You have a lot and still won't give. So they gave to another church. They gave to another church that was a good 800 miles away. Had never met anybody from that church, but they gave to that church. And now Paul's in prison. He's writing to them, thanking them for yet another gift Because he's received it. He said, I got it from Epaphroditus, who was one one of their servants there in Philippi. I've received it. And Paul said, I am amply supplied. You sent more than I needed. They didn't just give a little bit. They said, we want to make him cry. That's how much we love Paul. We want to bring a tear to his eye when he looks at the check we sent. Therefore, Paul says what he says. He says in verse 15. There is no church on the planet that has participated in the manner of giving and receiving like you. Now, that doesn't mean other churches didn't give. It simply means nobody gave like them. Unusual in their sacrifice. And it says in the Greek, the word manner, no one has participated in the manner of giving. The word manner is actually the word logos which is where we get the word word that's what it means but it means more than just a word it means a concept or idea and so how the Philippians probably heard what Paul was saying was this there is no church who has participated in the concept of giving receiving like you nobody meaning that Philippi had an understanding that other churches didn't now remember these were Gentiles Gentiles They're us that had had no, no education in spiritual proper behavior. They hadn't been housebroken. They didn't know anything about how the Israelites set up their system whereby the priests were provided for through the tithe and the offering, and the priests then would then provide the spiritual atmosphere necessary to produce a cohesive people that brought the process of redemption from them to their children and generationally passed it on so that the whole earth could be covered with, with the glory of the Lord as the waters come to the sea. They had no idea about that. They didn't know anything about the feasts at which people were to come three times a year. And it, you know what those were? Those were just conferences. Just a conference, a spiritual moment where everybody got together and they heard the word of redemption that had been in their history about what God did to, to, to Egypt and what he did out in the wilderness with booze and, 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 and all. I mean, Passover was that sacrificing of the lamb and, and, and death passing by. It was a week-long moment where they could hear about what God did and be encouraged that if he did it, then he can do it now. All of this was to build and keep a people cohesive, centered around a religious system that allowed them to be encouraged and informed about what God did so they would know what God will do. The Gentiles had nothing like that. In fact, their religious system was kind of, come if you want. you, You didn't have a church service where somebody talked about Zeus or Apollo philosophers would come and you had Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and those guys, but they weren't very religious in their orientation. They were just trying to figure out life under the sun. And so basically what you'd have if a person actually believed in a deity, which most of them did not, and most of the Greek gods were kind of immoral, eh, selfish, eh, not much gods. And... There was this sense that I need them to help me more than I need to obey them. And so they would come to their moments of worship, and it would usually be singular in its orientation. It wouldn't be congregational. And a person would come to their little cubicle, if you will, where Zeus was to be honored. They'd offer their sacrifice and light their candles and pray their prayer and get their request in, and then go on home. There wasn't a service of worship. And there was no opportunity to contribute for the purpose of expanding Zeus's kingdom throughout the earth. Nobody thought that was important. Why do that? This is our God. It's not the, the Lyconians' God. It's not the, the English's English God. It's our God. So we just stick with our God. The Gentiles needed to be taught about what it meant to be a cohesive people that began the process of expansion of a message. So that God could be glorified in all mankind. The Philippians got it. No church got it like you all got it. No church understood the concept of giving and receiving like you all. Now, it wasn't just the giving of the the Philippian church to Paul financially. And then Paul receiving it. He's not just talking about one way. He's talking about the partnership. Meaning... That no church has given like you all and experienced what it means to receive like you all. And that I have given you the gospel and I have given my life to you. I have benefited you with my information and my impartation. And as a result of me giving and you receiving information and becoming disciples and a cohesive people that can glorify God, you now have seen the benefit and said, we need to give back to you so you can continue to do what you're doing for us. And that partnership allowed for the gospel to progress, not only with the church at Philippi, but in every other place like Thessalonica. And even when Paul was in prison, he couldn't go out and get all the stuff he needed. I mean, you're working on prison rations. So he had no resources. The church at Philippi just said, here, we're going to send you something. And so he was able to do things that he would not have been able to do otherwise had not Philippi helped. No church has got it, has participated in the concept of giving and receiving like you. Because you realize what it means when I sow to you, you sow to me. And when I receive from you, I want to give back to you. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. As his church was growing in this understanding, he says, now there's, there's great profit in this. He said, I've received it, and I like it, but but I haven't received it in a manner that makes me happy just about receiving the gift for myself. But I'm more happy about the benefit that increases to your account. And it's interesting that the word account is the same word that was used for manner in the prior verse, logos, so he's saying this, I am not in it for me, but I'm in it so that the idea of what it means to partner can grow in your life. I I, I rejoice in the fact that you've done this because now the whole concept of what it means to give and receive and to partner in the gospel increases with you. And if you can understand that, boy, I don't even need to be around and encourage you in this because you can partner with God when I'm not here. You understand something about the principle of being integral in God's progress in the earth by giving so that other people can receive. Are you listening to me? It's not just about the individual resources that might come back to them, though there may be substantial individual resources that come back to the individual as a result of their gift. But it is not like an investment. It's better than that. An investment says this, I put money in, I'm looking to get money out. This is not just an investment. This is a gift that on the basis of your altruism and benevolence, God says, I love it so much, I'm going to bless you way beyond your gift. And you receive as a result of God's benevolence, not because he owes you something so that when you don't get what you think you need to get when you need to get it you don't get mad because what you gave you gave without thinking that God had to give you something back are you listening to me absolutely critical this is not about giving and taking giving and receiving there's nothing about Christianity it's about giving and taking but we we live in a world that's give and take. I give and I give to a point and then you have to get back. Because if you don't get back, then I ain't giving no more. Give and take is based on contracts. And contracts are, are helpful, but, but, but they aren't redemptive. They are, they are protective in their orientation. It guards you against somebody else's wrongdoing. And it lets you know when you can stop your commitment. Aren't you glad that God didn't enact a contract with you? Before the ink was dry. Before you had finished signing on the dotted line. How many times would you have already broken it? God didn't enact a contract with you. He placed a covenant in force. And a covenant is different. A covenant says this. I will do this regardless of what you do. I will love you regardless of who you, what you do, who you are. I love you. Your status. The amount of money you got. Socioeconomic standing. Doesn't matter. I love you. What you do. It matters, but it doesn't, it doesn't take my love away from you. I love you like that. I'm committed to your will-being. Whether you obey me or not, I'm going to send my son for your benefit. That's covenant. It's not tit for tat. God, it's giving and receiving, not giving and taking. It's not 50-50. Marriages are not 50-50. Relationships are not 50-50. I see a lot of things. A lot of relationships break up when it's 50-50 because when you've done your part now you're expecting the other party to do their part and when they don't do their part you get mad and leave you get mad and change the relationship but when both parties are given 100% I've never seen a relationship fall apart ever when both parties give 100% without concern for their own well-being all of both parties needs get met and so they don't have to concern themselves with their own well being. Hundred, hundred. Oh, you got it, church at Philippi. No church has got it like you got it. You grabbed the concept and you held on. You are giving. I, I, I love that the prophet like this is coming to your, your account. You, are, you have gained a real grasp on the idea of what it means to partner with me in this gospel. And as a result, Paul said, I have received everything. Here's what the provision looks like. I've received everything in full. I got more than I need, amply supplied. Whenever you give, somebody's need gets met. Whatever was lacking is now filled. And now you don't know it. But you've begun to prepare an on-ramp for God to do the extraordinary for you. Listen. He says, it's a fragrant aroma. I realize that there are people who manipulate the environment, spiritual men who manipulate the environment and talk about your responsibility to give to God and really they're asking you to give to them for their own selfish purposes. I get that. We're doing our best to never be that. But you, simply because people do it wrong doesn't mean there's not a principle that's true. And that when you give to, to, to people, you're giving to God. Jesus told the disciples, I want you to know, you, I, I was hungry and you fed me. I, I, I was, I, you remember when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I didn't have any clothes, you, you put, put a robe on my back. And the disciples said, we've never seen you like that, Jesus. Jesus said, when you did it to the least of these, my people my brethren, my family, you did it to me. You don't get away from the principle that when you do something for God's people, you do something directly for God. Even though people have misused the principle, the principle is still true. So, when you give, when Paul said, you gave to me, when you give to the people of God, you got got God's attention. So it rose as a fragrant aroma. My wife and I will go out you know some nice dinners everyone's gonna get invited places or I'll take her to a nice place to eat we get dressed up and when my wife gets dressed up she's real pretty I mean she's gorgeous without getting dressed up but when she gets dressed up I can't keep my eyes off the woman she's all that to me and then I'm sitting there getting ready and she's putting on her seventh pairs of clothes true you know ladies you know it's true and she finally gets prepared, and then the last thing she puts on is something that just makes my senses go nuts. I'm sitting there getting my tie together, getting myself, and all of a sudden she walks by her. To- Baby, you know, we ain't got to go out tonight. Though. I'm just saying, if you want to stay at home, I'm cool with that. Really, really. That's what fragrant aromas do for you. Whatever you were doing. Doesn't matter what you were doing. When that aroma hits your nostrils, you just... lean. God is redirected by offerings like this. Captures his attention. I don't care what he's doing in the earth. He's going to notice you. What is that coming from grace covenant? What's that coming from Jill's house? What's John doing? Ooh, we got to go figure that out. That's the way got a fragrant aroma. Secondly, an acceptable sacrifice. God receives it as if you are giving it directly to him. Even though you're giving it to somebody else, he said, it's mine. I want you to know. I, I love it. I thank you. Thank you. I accept what you give to me. And then lastly, says it makes God happy. Pleases him. Boy, that we would do our best to not just do our least. we are so messed up as human beings that we actually think we have accomplished something when we don't sin if we haven't disobeyed we pat ourselves on the back I didn't go off on her I didn't go off on her thank you Jesus thank you Jesus thank you Jesus it was so hard but I didn't thank you Jesus does anybody know what I'm talking about You know what you could have done, and you didn't do it, and you're sitting there, good job, good job, good job. We are so messed up that we think we've done something extraordinary when we haven't done wrong. When we should be pursuing things that bring a smile to the face of God, and not doing wrong doesn't make God smile. It just makes you not have to ask for forgiveness. That's all it does. It doesn't make him smile. Making him smile means that somebody's done the extraordinary. Not just what's obligatory, but the extraordinary. You go beyond what's required. Not just loving your wife and parenting your children. All those things are good. But Doing things that make people go, you did that? Why'd you do that? God gets happy when you partner with him like the church at Philippi. When nobody else was doing it and Paul didn't even ask. They just sent money. Extraordinary. And, and we'd, we'd like to finish our building next year. Do the extraordinary. Extraordinary. We'd like to build another house in South Africa for orphans because we've got more we're providing for. Help do the extraordinary. We've got kids we're providing for down at Yorkshire Elementary in Manassas, Virginia. Go over there and be a tutor. Do the extraordinary. It's not something that's required. It's extra. But it will guarantee, at least to some degree, when you put your head on your pillow at night, God will do this. Be pleased. And let me tell you, as I close... What happens in the end? The saints are provided for. A need that was is no longer. It's a fragrant aroma to God. He receives it as if you gave it directly to him. And it makes him happy. As a result of his disposition that has now been, been created by your action. He says this. And I want you to hear this like you've never heard it before. Many of you have read the scripture over and again. But you need to hear it afresh this morning. Paul is saying, he's saying something didactically. As if it were a command that was objective. Yet it is subjective. Meaning if he were to say, love your enemies. Well that would be a, a message from God. Because Jesus spoke it and it's true. But it's not subjective. Everybody needs to do that if he were to say love the Lord your God with all of your heart that would be an objective command it would be something that is true from God but it wouldn't be subjective when you get into the didactic that is subjective then you get into the prophetic meaning a command that is true from God but is subjective to a circumstance or a setting he says this because you've done this because you partnered with me because you did the unusual I want you to know something hear me he doesn't say thus says the Lord but he gets this emphatic and he doesn't say it like this to any other church this is not a commandment this is not an exhortation that you can just grab and hold on to without fulfilling the requirements upon which Paul made the exhortation he says this and I want you to know something and my God is going to provide all your needs according to his riches and glory he will supply like that for you he didn't say that to Galatians he didn't say that to Corinth he said to Corinth that my God will supply abundantly if you sow so it was an exhortation that was conditional and so he was giving them encouragement to do the right thing it wasn't a prophetic word that came out and said God is doing this to the church that had already done what Paul was encouraging Corinth to do He says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. An emphatic didactic statement that is subjective to the people to whom he's speaking. But can be applied to anybody who follows His pattern. Now the beauty is this. And I close. If I come to you and and I, I, I utter these words. I feel like I need... To supply all your needs. Mm, okay. <laughs> I'm feeling you, Pastor. I'm feeling you. Absolutely. Amen to that. But then I finished the statement, according to my resources. Yes. And, and everybody just, oh, yes. oh, <laughs> you mean like that. Okay, $10 to the mortgage, $10 to to the car note, I get a couple of bucks to the kids' tuition, I got it. Okay, thank you, Pastor. I'm not mad at you, I just want you to know. I'm grateful, but I understand now. Hmm. And what if it's God who's saying it? And my God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches. You partner with the people of God like this. You don't just tip God every once in a while when he blesses you. You partner. You get it like the church at Philippi got it. You understand conceptually the idea of what it means to partner in the matter of giving and receiving. That as you have received, so you give. And as you give, you will receive. When you partner like that, and you do it without being commanded to do so, and your heart just overflows with, hey... I heard this need. Can I please support? Nobody's even asked you. You just say, I, I volunteer to support. When you do it like that, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. And you want God to partner with you like that. And why is he doing it? Why is he supplying your needs according to his riches? Because he has so few people that will do what you do so few people who will just volunteer to say I want to pony up I'm going to participate like this everybody gives when they can give what they can give when they can to the person that says I'm partnering with you God says that's how I predispose myself to them be one of those Be one of those. We're not talking about amount. We're talking about heart. We're not talking about numbers of zeros. We're talking about proportion. Jesus is not looking at how much you give. He's looking at how you give. Let's pray.